listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Our scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, beginning at verse 23. It says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We pray. Father, we come to the great time in our moment of Sundays of worship of opening up your word. Father, what an honor and a privilege it is to be able to teach each and every week. Lord, as we go back over the events of this last week, Lord, forgive us for the times where we have forgotten the gospel. Forgive us the times where we have not loved you and others. Lord, forgive us for neglecting time in your word. Father, we believe that your mercies are new each and every day. And therefore, we stand upon that truth. It is the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit, we ask all of these things, amen and amen. You may be seated. I'd love to invite you in your Bibles or on your device to the book of Galatians. Believe it or not, today we'll actually make it halfway to the halfway point in this book. It's taken us 12 weeks. Uh, the second half will go a little bit uh, quicker. But have you ever had, maybe you've been on a trip, or maybe you received a gift that was just absolutely incredible. You know, the trip was something that you'd been looking forward to for so long. You had dreamed, and you had thought, and you had imagined it. Or maybe that gift that you opened, and you were just blown away by a person that they could be so thoughtful. It's like they were almost in your head. Something like that. Well, I was talking over the kids for breakfast one day, and what you do, you kind of fish for illustrations. And I said, all right, kids, so has there been a trip? You know, something that we did, and, uh, you know, it was great, but then all of a sudden, it just got even better. So I'm waiting and waiting, and Marcus says, oh, yeah, like that time when we left uh, Cisco, and you told us we were going to stop at our cousin's house, and you lied to us. And I said, well, okay, next. And that was all they had. But it's, it's like that great trip, or it's that gift that you open that you just think it could not get any better. But just when you think things could not improve, man, that gift gets even better, or that trip turns in a way that you just had no idea that was what was happening. 
Well, this week is something like that. Today marks a very special day in the life and the history of the church. We call this Sunday Palm Sunday, and it commemorates that time of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on that colt. And what an amazing day that must have been like. Everybody going about their ordinary day, but all of a sudden, the murmuring and, and the whispers and then the noise begins to spread that the Messiah is actually riding into town. You know, one day you finally look up and you see him riding into Jerusalem on that colt, just like your parents and your grandparents have been telling you over and over again. So this week in the passage that I read that we're going to walk through, it is an incredible passage for us. But just when you think things couldn't get any better, Easter is just around the corner. Because for the last two and a half chapters in Galatians, we've been seeing over and over where God has been dealing with our greatest need. Our greatest need that sits at the top of the list is to be reconciled with God. In fact, there is no greater need that you have. Bigger than your finances, bigger than your marriage, bigger than your parenting. Your biggest need is to be reconciled with God. There's no need greater than that. Because without being reconciled with God, nothing else matters. Absolutely nothing. So over and over again, Paul has been trying to win the Galatian believers back to the truth that a person is reconciled, that they are made right, or we would use the word justified, only through faith in Jesus Christ and not on their own merits or on their own works of the law. And hopefully that we walk away with Galatians, through Galatians that we can begin to understand that. In fact, the only way, the only way to have our greatest need of reconciliation met is through faith in Christ alone. And here's what I mean by that. You know, we could never have our behavior well enough. You could never have your thoughts pure enough. Our motives could never be completely selfless, and your actions could never be kind enough to ever earn you God's acceptance. You can try as you may, but you would never do enough that God would look at you and accept you. Our greatest need is only met through grace alone, meaning you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. It's through faith alone, meaning it's not by works. It's only through faith and in Christ alone. You can put your faith in a lot of things, but only Christ will earn you the reconciliation of having your greatest need met. But just when you think things couldn't get any better, would you believe me if I said that I think there's even a greater blessing than that? Meaning our greatest need is to be reconciled to God. Nothing else matters if that doesn't happen. But I think there's an even greater blessing. So let's begin today and see if that is, abs see if that is true. So Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So Paul begins by saying, now before faith 
came. But what is he referring to? Well, Paul can't mean that no one in Israel was, was ever saved. He, he can't mean that. Because over and over, over the last several weeks, we even saw Abraham. He was justified by faith. So how are the people in the Old Testament, how were they made right before Jesus Christ ever came? In fact, Hebrews 11, that hall of faith, is a list of people that had saving faith in the Old Testament. So Paul can't mean that there was no faith before Jesus. So what is he referring to? Well, as I study this passage, I believe he's referring to the time after the promise of Abraham when the giving of the Spirit was starting to be fulfilled. Or you could maybe sum this up, the advent, the, the coming of Christ. When all of that happened, in came faith. So what was God's plan before faith? What, what was it before Jesus Christ? Those that lived on that side of the cross, what was God's plan? Well, he lays it out for us. He says, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith, would be revealed. But I want us to notice two things. First, notice Paul's change in person. For several verses now, for 22 verses, he's been using second person. But all of a sudden, he switches to a first person we. I think Paul is writing this letter. Remember, he's writing to these churches in Galatia. And every one of these churches would pass this letter around and it would be read. You would hear, hey, Paul's letter is coming this week. Make sure you are there. But in that audience would also, I believe, still be some of the Judaizers. They're not going to leave. They want to hear what's Paul going to say about what we've been teaching. So Paul is using this to identify himself as someone that came up under the law. But second, notice the purpose. The law was to hold Israel captive or to imprison them. Now, doesn't that seem like a strange way to refer to something from God? That it's something that's going to imprison you. It's, it's something that's going to surround you. It's something that is going to restrain you. So what does Paul mean? I, I think for us, the, the closest example that we might have of this would be somebody that is in protective custody. I've never known anyone, but I've seen enough TV that uh, you take someone in and they are put in protective custody, meaning they're restrained from going to certain places. They're, they're confined to a certain area, but it's all done for their own good and their own protection. And so the law was there to protect. It was there to surround Israel. But now Paul's going to give Another illustration to show the purpose of the law. Look at verse 24. So then, so first of all, it's to hold you captive, it's to imprison you, it's to restrain you, confine you. But it's also, the law was our guardian until Christ came. And I think that's the connection with faith coming in order that we might be justified by faith. So several translations, that if you use the ESV, you'll find the word guardian. But if you use another one, maybe the NASB or the New King James, it says tutor. But both of these words don't go quite far enough. In fact, it really is a word 
that is uh, closest to the word pedagogue. And pedagogue is something we're really not familiar with. But if you've ever seen maybe an old show, maybe you, you've seen Downton Abbey. There'd be the, the rich family and they would then have servants. And it was the servants were the ones that really cared for, that really taught and trained those young children. It was a practice of a servant watching over, training, even disciplining the child of their boss. And that's what that word means. It was a guardian, someone that was going to raise them, that was going to teach them along the way. But God is so gracious that all truth, all truth is God's truth. No matter where you find it, if it is true to Scripture, it's truth. And God, it is from Him. And I think He does this, even in our culture, that God is taking and He's giving us things that we can watch and we can see that we go and that should reflect us back to see God's truth in Scripture. So I found a great illustration. In fact, I stole this from Ross Strader. But it's such a great example of what this guardian was like. Have you ever seen the movie Nanny McPhee? So Nanny McPhee, there's this byline that says, uh, behave or beware. And that was the tagline of this movie. And it's this movie about seven kind of naughty children and their magical but ugly governess who was set to set them straight. If you've ever seen it, you know, they were successful, I think it said, in scaring away 17 nannies. In fact, their widow of father, he, he's kind of lost all hope. And mysteriously, this nanny McPhee appears at the door. Now, she is strange. She's dressed in black. She carries this crooked uh, walking stick. She's got this bulging nose, prominent facial warts, and she's even got this huge snaggle tooth. But she casually announces that she will be able to teach the children five lessons. Go to bed when you're told. Get up when you're told. Get dressed when you're told. Listen at all times. And do exactly as you're told. Now, we know as parents that would be incredible to bring this lady in that our children would do this. But although the kids are convinced that they could send her running for the hills, you've seen the movie, you know they are sadly mistaken. When Nanny McPhee meets these children, here's what she announces. She says, I'm Nanny McPhee, little C, big P. And she says, when you need me, when you need me, but do not want me, then I'm going to stay. But when you want me, but you no longer need me, then I have to go. Now think about that. She says, when you need me, but you do not want me, then I'm going to stay. But when you want me, but you no longer need me, then I will go. So little Simon says, well, we'll never want you. And she says, then I'll never go. Man, this is so much a lot like the law and faith. You see, when faith comes, the law is no longer needed. But the law is there until God said, now is the time for the coming of faith, for the advent of Christ. Because the law, it could never justify you. It can only show you your sin, and it even brings your hidden sins to the surface. That's what the law does. That was the purpose of the law. It was to guard Israel. 
It was only given to them. They were to try to live according to this so that other people would notice. But it was also given to them as a moral training ground. The law was their nanny, McPhee. And as the children learned that each lesson, if you remember each lesson they learned, Nanny McPhee began to change. And she became a little bit more beautiful. So when faith came to the law, it makes the law more beautiful. And I'll show you why in, or how in just a minute. But in both of these examples, keeping captive and, and being a guardian, the relationship with the law, and get this, the relationship with the law it was never intimate. It was never personal. Because you know why? It was all based on beware or behave. The law was all based on rewards and punishment. But a relationship built upon rewards and punishment, that was never to be the end result. God had something much better in mind. In fact, he placed this example within your own life with your children. And that's what God does. He's always throwing truth and injecting truth into us. It's when you're training your children, when you're training them, they are set up on a rewards and a punishment system. You know, you want your children to speak respectfully. You want them to take responsibility for their actions. You want them to tell the truth. So you set up rewards for good behavior. Maybe words of affirmation or, or a special treat or doing something that they enjoy. But you also set up punishments for wrong behavior, don't we as parents? That Maybe it's words of affirmation or words of harshness of trying to correct them. Or maybe, maybe it's time alone or, or taking something away or even spanking. But hopefully your desire as a parent is not for them to always live under the rewards and punishments only. Hopefully, hopefully they move to a different place because this is why I think it's so hard for children to understand and to appreciate and to know what grace really is because all throughout their life everything is based on you do this you get rewarded if you do that then you're going to get punished so where are they going to learn what grace actually is and I think God says in the home so your hope that their relationship with you grows and that they would choose the right behavior First of all, out of respect for the Lord, hopefully to honor you as their parent, and then even out of love for themselves, hopefully behavior begins to change. So here's what the law did. It was to watch over. It was to train. It was to even discipline Israel until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. See, the law a relationship built on rewards and punishment could never justify or make a person right with God. It could never do that. That was never its purpose. That can only happen through faith. But not just any faith. It's just faith in Christ. But what is that faith in Christ that counts? And we have to make sure we are crystal clear in this. So here's how I wrote it. Faith. That counts faith, that counts as a faith that believes that Christ lived a life that you could never live in perfect obedience to God the Father. And that Christ died the death that you deserve. 
And that is faith that justifies, that makes a person right with God. The law, it was to train. It was to point to the way of Jesus. It was never meant as a means of reconciliation because it could never accomplish it. But God had planned all along that one day he was going to take away that guardian, that tutor. Because look at verse 25. But now, now in just the right time, faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. So now faith has come. The guardian has been removed. And so Paul is saying something like this to the Galatians. He says, look. About 20 years ago, something happened in Jerusalem that would forever change the history of the world. God's promise, that promised Messiah, that seed of Abraham, he appeared on earth. He was born under the law, just like you. But he fulfilled every part of the law perfectly, unlike you. But that's not all. Because you could not keep the law, you actually come under the curse of the law. And for your sake, Christ suffered the curse of the law on the cross so that you could be justified and set free from the bondage of sin and death that the law rightly imposed on you because of your rebellion and your unbelief. And what he says is your greatest need, our greatest need, my greatest need is to be reconciled and made right with God. There is no need greater. But the law, the law is simply there as a training guide. The law could only prove how sinful and wicked and rebellious and how much unbelief is really in us. In fact, it only shows you what sin is. It, it brings that hidden sin to the surface. But here's the good news. In Christ, God takes our greatest need, reconciliation of being made right. And I think you could sum all of that up. How does that need happen? How does that need get met? It begins only in forgiveness. That the first thing that had to happen to be reconciled, to be made right, is that we must be forgiven. Once again, I think God interjects this truth right into our lives. When you've been offended, when you've been hurt, you've been disrespected, or you've been disobeyed again, for reconciliation to happen, forgiveness must take place. And I hope, I mean, I hope and I, I prayed this last week that we all have that comfort in knowing that in Christ you find an incredible place. That we find a place where we stand completely and utterly forgiven by God. That we find a place that no matter how deep you may look into yourself, there is absolutely no condemnation that God holds against you. Only complete forgiveness. I think, isn't that an incredible thought to think that when you are trusting in Jesus Christ and what he did for you, you are completely forgiven. No matter what the mistake, the act of rebellion, or even the thought of unbelief, God says all is forgiven. But here's what I hope we see. If all God does 
If all God did was forgive us, that is more than we could ever ask for or even hope for. There's nothing more that we could even hope for that He would forgive us. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. Forgiveness takes care of your greatest need. But just when you think it can't get any better, when you have opened up that gift of forgiveness that is more than you could ever deserve or to hope for, there's an even greater blessing hidden there for you. You ready for it? Look at verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you, you are all sons of God through faith. So not only does God forgive you in Christ, He makes you one of His children. So God is no longer your judge. He now is your Father. And I can't wait to unpack that next week on Easter morning. So not only does God offer you forgiveness, He goes far enough to include you as one of His sons and daughters. And next week we will talk about that in great detail. But I want us to see why Paul would make this point. Why would he move from showing forgiveness and, and reconciliation that comes only through faith in Christ and not works to being sons of God? Why would he make that transition? Remember his audience. He's writing to, uh, to believers in Galatia, writing to Gentiles, non-Jews. But in that audience, there are also those Judaizers. There's probably also some, some faith-believing Jews. But Paul knows they're probably both listening to this letter that is being read aloud in this church. And going back to the beginning of the book, I think Paul has a great desire for unity within the church. So not only does, does Paul want to win those Galatian believers, he also wants to win the Judaizers to the truth. Just as much as Paul wants to see the Galatian believers come and to believe that they are accepted only through faith, I think Paul is laying it all in line that that is his desire for those Judaizers to experience it as well. Paul's going to show us the way in the result. Look at verse 27. As for many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now, first of all, make sure we understand, Paul is not saying that you have to be baptized to be saved. I've heard that verse used that way. But over and over again, for three chapters, Paul has been saying, you are justified, and we should know this by now, by faith alone, not by keeping the law and not being circumcised. So how in the world could Paul now add a work to being justified? So second... I think Paul is referring to their salvation experience. What does it mean to be in Christ when faith came? When a person comes to faith, it says they are identified with Jesus Christ. God no longer sees them as an unjustified sinner. He sees them as his son. So a believer, they are baptized, they are identified, they are united as Christ. But that person... They've also received the promise of Abraham, that the Holy Spirit. And when all of this happens in the life of a person, Paul is saying that you are actually putting on 
You are actually putting on Christ. But what, what does he mean? How do you put on someone? Well, in Roman society, when a, a young man would come of age, he was given a special toga. And this would admit him to the full and absolute rights of the family. And when people would look at him, they would identify him as a grown-up son. So God gives us this reminder of the reality of everyday life. Every time you get dressed, you're faced with the reality of clothing. So for one, our clothing, it identifies us. To say Christ is our clothing is to say he is actually our ultimate place of finding our identity. Man, allow that just to sink in. Think of all the ways we are looking for identity and value. And he says, when you put on Christ, that is all that you need. But I think our clothing also shows us that we really are accepted We never have to question, has God fully accepted me? Because clothes, they cover our nakedness. And after the fall, that's what God did with Adam and Eve. He clothed them. So to say that Christ is our clothing is to say that in God's sight we are loved because of Jesus' work in salvation. God looks at us, and when He does, He sees His Son not us. In fact, in Christ you are fully known, fully accepted, and fully loved. But then, notice, notice the reality of this new identity, the last two verses. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So since all believers, all believers of all generations, they become one with one another. We're all connected. Meaning that human distinctions They lose their significance. And I think that's what Paul is saying, that we are all one person in Christ. No believer has more privilege than the other. No one outranks anyone else. The distinctions that we create do not exist in the one body of Christ. Because notice, he goes after three distinctions. Jew nor Greek, meaning race has no distinction. Slave nor free, meaning your rank or money, no distinction. No male or female, meaning sex and gender. They have no distinction in the body of Christ. But but it doesn't mean that we don't notice the differences and even appreciate them. But that we allow these distinctions, that we don't allow them to set up a hierarchy of privilege. In fact, we need to celebrate and appreciate the differences that we actually have. So I think Paul is saying that when people of different race and status and gender, when they come together, when they come together and work together and serve together and worship together, that should be a picture to the world of the unity that only happens in the gospel. And here is what I want us to see today. The law. The law was God's supervisor until Christ came. The law, it's like this guardian over a young child. And the hope is that that child would grow up. That child would begin to grow and no longer be persuaded into obedience by rewards or the fear of punishment. It's no longer behave or beware. But when faith comes to the law, 
the law should actually become beautiful like Nanny McPhee did. Because we see the law now through the eyes of faith. The law shows us how sinful we are, but then it points us to this only solution of Jesus Christ. Then hopefully we seek to obey, not because we think it earns us anything or we're afraid that something is going to happen to punish us, but because we simply want to honor the Lord. So the gospel means this. You no longer have to obey the law out of fear of rejection or the hopes of acceptance, but that your motive for obedience is grateful joy and gratitude. So once again, week after week, I have been asking this question. What or who are you trusting in to make you right with God? The only solution, it must be Jesus plus nothing. That's all it is. It is Jesus plus nothing. And if you try to add anything else onto that, it will fail. So I want to close with telling you a short little example by a guy named Dr. Lewis Sperry Schaefer. I never got to meet him. He died in the 50s. But he was the founder and the president of Dallas Theological Seminary. Read several of his books, a very godly man. But one day he was teaching a class. And it would be his last year on earth. At this point in his life, he's in a wheelchair, his body is weak, his voice is frail. In fact, he even had to teach in class with a microphone, but his mind was sharp. Schaefer was closing out of class one day, and he said this. He said, men, I want to trust Jesus Christ alone to be my Savior. And then he said, if when I stand before God and God should say, Schaefer, by what right should I admit you into heaven? I want to say, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ alone. But if God said to me, Schaefer, certainly that's important. But don't you want something else that you are relying on? And Schaefer said, I want to so trust Jesus Christ that if God said that to me, I would turn away and be lost forever. That, that is the gospel. It is Jesus plus nothing. In Christ, our greatest need is met, but next week it gets even better. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being faithful to us and always meeting us right where we are and exactly with what we need. It's such a privilege to gather with this group of believers each and every week. And as we know, if we turn on the radio or our TVs, we know that that isn't a reality in many other places in this world. So, Father, I pray that you would take your truth this morning as only you can, you would take your truth and accomplish its purpose in our lives and in our hearts. And as we think about that day that thousands of years ago, when your son came riding into Jerusalem to fulfill that prophecy, the excitement that was swelling in that city. But oh, how dark it would turn in just a few days. 
but it's all a part of your plan. And so, Father, be with us this Passover week. Remind us, cause us to think about and reflect upon the, the darkness and the shadows and the horror of the cross. Let it sit heavy on us this week, but always knowing that Sunday's coming. And in that day when that tomb was found empty, everything changed. So Lord, then may we come, if it is your will, to bring us back next week, ready to proclaim the truth that he lives. So Lord, it is in the name of your Son, and by the power of your Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.